Welcome to We The Podcast, the show about how the people outside of the billionaire and millionaire class, you know, most of us, engage the economy. As a member of Congress, I talk with a lot of different people and I hear a lot of different stories. I started this podcast a little bit more than a year ago as a way to tell stories about people and how they're interacting with this economy that we're all dealing with. We've covered everything from union organizing to prison phone rates to the voting gap. The nightly news might cover the Dow Jones Industrial Average and it might even get around to the unemployment rate, but that says very little about what working people are actually experiencing and dealing with on a daily basis. Millions of people are left out of the conversation. In fact, when we talk about race, decision makers rarely talk about women. And when we talk about women's issues, we rarely talk about black girls and women. This is a concept known as intersectionality, and it was popularized by a UCLA professor named Kimberly Crenshaw. I sat down with Professor Crenshaw to talk about intersectionality, black girls and women, and how they're left behind in our economy. And most importantly, what we're gonna do about it. So, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, it's a pleasure to be with you, and welcome to We The Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be able to do this with you. You know, Professor Crenshaw, you know, you have uh, really made the idea of intersectionality really a famous idea. It's referenced all over the place. You've written extensively. You speak widely. And uh, I just thought I'd ask you just a few of your insights on how black women in particular experience the economy, mm -hmm. particularly when so much of uh, how the economy works, we want to ask uh, a CEO of some company, usually some white, rich male guy. We want to know from, you know, whether it's uh, Warren Buffett or who knows, we want to know from them, how's the economy going? But I'd rather know from your perspective and given the research and all that you do, how do black women experience the economy that, you know, maybe other people just don't know about. Yeah. Well, you know, the very uh, term intersectionality actually came from trying to think about how black women experience access to the workforce. Um, initially, uh, black women, when they were trying to get jobs, for example, high paying jobs uh, in the manufacturing industry, in the car industry, ran up against barriers that were race barriers and gender barriers. Black women, for example, couldn't get jobs at General Motors, right? Even though um, General Motors and industrial jobs were highly touted as uh, avenues towards the middle class for those who were willing to work hard, the, what was also the case is that if there wasn't a place for you in this industry, that whole American dream just wasn't accessible. So many of these jobs were men's jobs. The black jobs generally were the floor jobs. They were the jobs putting together the cars. They were not seen as appropriate jobs for women. And the women's jobs were the front office jobs, the secretarial jobs that were not seen as appropriate for women who were black. So basically, black women were boxed out. They couldn't get the 
black jobs because they were women and they couldn't get the women's jobs because they were black. That's sort of the classic intersectional dilemma, right? Sure. You've got all these different uh, aspects of discrimination on top of each other and together they push certain people out of the workforce or other out of other kinds of activities. That's problem number one. And then problem number two is the interventions, the things that are meant to address that problem, like um, Title VII, right. Right? rights against discrimination. Don't pay attention to the intersection. So they've got something to say if you were excluded because of race, but they couldn't get access to that because men, black men weren't discriminated against. And there are there are interventions if you're excluded because of gender, but they couldn't get access to that because white women weren't excluded. So it's sort of a double whammy. Stuff happens to you and then no one seems to notice. So if we take intersectionality from its historical origins to yep. now, we're looking at the same thing in terms of the economy. Um, so there are aspects of the economy where women are uh, concentrated, um, and those places in the economy are hardest hit um, by economic downturns. They're hardest hit uh, by uh, welfare policies, for example. One of the uh, unrecognized uh, consequences of so-called welfare reform is that uh, women who were forced to work for wages or work for their benefits actually ended up pushing low-income women of color out from the, the toehold they even had in the economy. Hmm. Um, as a consequence, um, a lot of women who were barely holding on were actually pushed onto uh, government support and then had to come back and do the same jobs that they had been doing for pay, but now they're doing it for benefits. So that's a classic kind of intersectional dilemma. The jobs for women are generally in service economies where there aren't a lot of benefits, where the wages um, are really susceptible to economic downturns. They get pushed out um, in large part because of who they are. Then they, if they're going to get benefits, they actually have to come back and basically work for slave wages. Well, you mentioned interventions, and uh, one of the great achievements of working people in America was uh, the National Labor Relations Act. Right. And uh, I think it's uh, interesting, you know, we, we think of unionization as historically a way that working people could improve wages and working conditions. And yet for domestic workers, mm -hmm. and we know who, who that is, um, you know, that really was unavailable under the NLRA. Yep. And so, you know, th that kind of protections they really don't, you know, domestic workers don't get that. And at the time that law was promulgated, you know, your average domestic worker was probably a black woman. Yes. Um, and so what, what and, about... And let's, and let's add to that um, agricultural workers, right. uh, domestic workers being excluded also from social security. Social security, You know, yeah. this was a gerrymandered social policy right. that was explicitly... Um, exclusionary of the majority of people who were working in these particular sectors. So right. Latinos, Latinas, black uh, women, black men, by legislation being pushed out. I think one of the important things also is that there, there's often the tendency to say, well, that was a long time ago. That doesn't impact us now. But the, the, the reality about economic inequality is that um, a decision that distinguishes between people and benefits some people and not others actually grows in importance over time. Yeah. So, so let's take um, the Federal Housing Act, something that, that um, was passed after World War II. Federal Housing Act put 
billions of dollars into creating the suburbs. Right. Billions of dollars. Um, it created the suburbs as racially exclusive havens. You have, let's say, a black GI and a white GI. They both can't afford, say, $62 a month for their housing. The white GI can actually go into a Levittown, for example, um, and buy a home with all kinds of accoutrements. And that home ends up creating wealth over time, right? It accumulates in value. Equity in that. The same black GI, right, who's not able to buy there, has to spend his money on rent, probably um, in public housing, which does not create benefits over time, which means several things. The YGI can pass the value of his um, accumulation onto his uh, children, help pay for college, help create a down payment, help pay for- Start a business. All sorts, start a business. Take care of mom and pop in old age. The black family has not been able to accrue wealth They've not been able to save for college. They've not been able to take care of mom and pop. And it's even worse because mom and pop probably were in an industry where they didn't get the benefits of social security. So you have contemporary inequality that's even greater, but you have a rhetoric that says, you're the, you're the reason why you're right. in an unequal situation when in fact it's policies that stretch back decades. Well, you know, it is policies that stretch back decades, but... Also, you take the Family Medical Leave Act, which requires employees to employers to allow employees to take up to 12 unpaid weeks of uh, unpaid leave to care for themselves, a sick family member. Uh, but it exempts employers with fewer than 50 employees. Basically, if you're a d domestic worker, you're not going to be in that. And uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, has employer mandate, which requires employees to offer employees the opportunity to enroll and employer-sponsored health insurance exempts employers with fewer than 50 employees as well. So if you are a black woman, Latino woman, working in somebody's house, mm -hmm. looking after their kids, their parents, mm -hmm. then that doesn't apply to you. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's, so and it's not just old laws. It's, it's contemporary you well know. laws. Yeah. Right. And, and it, it's, the, it's the perpetuation of these exclusions. Um, that creates so much of the inequality, but on top of that, the lack of a framework that identifies particular impacts, right? right? So um, there, there's a whole conversation, for example, about how have women and girls of color uh, been um, uh, advanced by some of the policies over the last couple of years. Um, often it's said that the Lilly Ledbetter Act for example, um, is one of the things that benefits women and girls of color. Um, it's often said that STEM education is one of the things that helps um, women and girls of color get an economic toll. What people aren't talking about is, well, which women and girls of color and where are the women who don't have access to these particular kind of interventions? So we, we actually have to have an intersectional frame to be able to understand whether these policies are actually trickling all the way down to the women who most need them. And there's generally a, a resistance to, to talking about, well, let's really look at how women and girls of color are experiencing this. Do they really have access to these STEM programs? Do they even have access to being able to get to school in the first place? Right. Or do they have access to the jobs 
for which the Lilly Ledbetter Act actually provides some kind of remedy. You first have to get employed and you have to get employed at a level that the Lilly Ledbetter Act clicks, uh, kicks in. So an intersectional analysis says, okay, um, it is, it, it's great that we have some things that are addressing families in need. It's great that we have some things that are looking at women, but we need to dig deeper to see whether there are race and class structures that get in the way of those interventions actually having any direct impact on the women of color who are at the margins. Yeah. So let's talk about stuff like the fight for 15 minimum wage, things like that. I mean, when I go to rallies, for the fight to 15, and I, and I do go to those rallies um, in, in March with the workers, I often see a lot of them are led by black women. Mm -hmm. There's a really awesome young lady who have become a good friend of mine named LaQuasia Legrand, who you, mm -hmm. you may have met. Mm -hmm. And uh, LaQuasia was working for two KFCs, and had, but had to get on the train to go to, get, go to one, get out of the train, go to the next one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, couldn't, was making seven, eight bucks, couldn't really accumulate the money she needed. First of all, how does raising the minimum wage to 12 or $15 impact black women in particular? Mm -hmm. And then also in the fight to raise the wage for everyone, where, what role are black women playing? Because mm -hmm. I think they're playing a pretty important yeah. role. Yeah, yeah. So, and I'll, I'll start with that because, you know, black women are at the forefront of uh, the movement um, against um, economic marginality. So it's, it's the $15 wage. Um, but but it's also uh, movements against the, the consequences of being uh, uh, in communities that because of economics are the most marginal communities geographically. So they live furthest away from where the jobs really are. Right. And they live closest to the places where there are environmental hazards and other kinds of sure. uh, uh, realities that undermine uh, their well-being. When, when we think about, you know, where are the families that are the majority of those families led by uh, women, uh, particularly women of color. These are the families that are living outside the thoroughfares, the ones that have to take, you know, as Jesse Jackson used to say, the early bus, you mm -hmm. know, to get to work. Um, these are the ones that have to worry about whether they should give a glass of water to their kids. So, so people have um, uh, a, an understanding uh, in these communities that this is the way that we are experiencing this discrimination, and it's up to us um, to put a face on it, right? So we, we see black women there. We see them, of course, in the broader movement uh, against state-sanctioned violence and police yeah, brutality. Absolutely. So um, the leadership uh, of black women is not new. I, I, I think in this month in particular, when Harriet Tubman is going to appear uh, we know now that she's going to appear on currency uh, is a reminder that black women have always been at the forefront of the struggle for equality, um, economic equality, as well as race and gender equality. Um, and they also represent the idea, again, that, you know, trickle down policies that don't start with, well, what does a single Latina mom need in order to have a living wage, mm -hmm. either in terms of the actual wage transfer or in terms of other uh, a kind in-kind kind of supports. What do they need? And to the extent that they don't have that need, that is a deficit that needs to be made up, right? Yeah. That's not, 
you know, some kind of benefit or, you know, some kind of coddling. It is making up for the fact that they are doing productive work. Namely, they're raising our citizens and sure. workers of the future. They're doing it on uh, wages that do not help support them. And what we need is to be able to speak about their needs in ways that don't stereotype them as dependents or don't stereotype them uh, as women who um, have... Uh, uh, loose morals or women who are uh, engaging in, in activities that create pathologies. We need to see them as in situations that are actually risk-filled situations. Yeah. Not them, but the lives and the circumstances under which they're forced to live. Well, you know, on this issue of the minimum wage, I mean, uh, there's a lot of black women and a lot of women and men too who, who work uh, in the restaurant industry yes where the federal minimum wage is $2.13. So, I mean, how many black women working in uh, in the food industry, serving, hoping for them tips, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I mean, you know, these they don't, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough struggle. What about, what about even that problem? I mean, the yeah. tip minimum wage, which, which is a lot of women, a lot of women of color. And, and, and let's name what some of those difficulties are. Right? Yeah, yeah. When you work for tips, what does that mean in terms of your ability to uh, enforce an expectation that you are treated appropriately by the customers? Well, you've got to audition every single time. Every you... time you have to have the pleasing behavior often in contexts where the customers are not expressing um, legitimate behavior and expectations. Well, they're they're you. being they're harassing you. They're harassing. They're sexually you. harassing. They're you. they're insulting you. Yeah. They're basically making you grin and accept it in exchange for a pittance. Mm -hmm. Right. This is not just a problem of the customer. It's structured. Yeah. And 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 largely, I think intentionally structured that way. Right. The idea uh, about giving women. Uh, a minimum wage is often resisted by the various industries, including the service and restaurant industry, yeah, yeah. Um, not only because of the bottom line for them, although I think that's a big part of it, but it actually changes the relationship between the servers and the people who are served, right? Yeah. So, you know, th this is an example where uh, economic interests um, uh, f around equality and other kinds of campaigns for you know, more robust protection against discrimination in the workforce, more robust protection against sexual harassment. All these things can come together, especially if we target our inquiry. What is happening to low-wage women? What are the dimensions of their lives? What are the policy implications that we need to make in order to alleviate many of the pressures that force them into the lowest uh, sector uh, of the economic uh, workforce. Well, well, let me just you know just mention there's a there's a person who uh, I admire a lot. Her name is uh, Saru uh, Jaya Jaya Man, mm -hmm. and she works with a group called Rock. Right. And she says that the original workers that were not paid anything by their employers were the newly freed slaves. This whole concept of not paying them anything and letting them live on tips 
carried over from slavery. I bet you're probably not surprised about that. Yes, yes, right. Well, you know, let's let's just go back a little further, right? Yeah. Um, the the real precedent for not paying anybody for work, of course, is slavery and, and housework. Yeah. Right. Um, and 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 you put those two things together in the bodies of black women, mm-hmm. and you get a massive underpayment that is intergenerational that's happened across two centuries, right? So um, there's a lot of conversation about income, but I want to take it up a notch and talk about wealth. Yeah, let's talk wealth. Let's talk about wealth. So um, the the median net wealth for for single uh, black uh, parents, single black mothers, is $5. Wow. Median net wealth is $5. Now, um, so like, wait a minute, if the car breaks down, your fallback position is none or you have no five, or bu- five you, bucks. Oh, yes. Right. Which basically is the, the cost of a bus fare. You can get right. yourself to work. You can't get home. Right. But right. you can get yourself, you know, to work. So mm-hmm. wealth is what gives you access to uh, healthy food, to um, neighborhoods that your children can uh, play safe and free, to um, interventions for your children, um, uh, extracurricular activities, vacations, uh, protection a- against being sick, um, uh, resources to take care of, 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 of loved ones. Wealth is like that cushion that allows you to thrive. Yeah. When Deal with a rainy women, day. A rainy day, right? Mm-hmm. Every day is a rainy day for people who have a median net wealth of five dollars, right? Day, so, yeah. um, this median net wealth tells us more about the economic well-being um, of women and 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 families of color than any other uh, statistic, and it also is the statistic. Um, that decreased the most after the mortgage crisis. Right, the two thousand and eight mortgage crisis. Yes had a devastating effect. Absolutely. And what we're not talking about is the racial disparity, right, Mm -hmm. in the economic effects. So black and Latino households lost between 25, some people say uh, more than 40% of their net wealth just out of their pocket, right? Mm -hmm. Huge. It is largely women inside of that that lost the most right so when we look around at neighborhoods that used to be neighborhoods where families own their homes or at least um a a a greater share of them own their homes this thing knocked that out Mm -hmm. now that's going to have increasing consequences across the board right the entire value of the neighborhood uh collapses your ability to rely on this nest egg that you have been trying to maintain all these years for you know sending your kids to school or taking care of yourself in old age that's going that's gone right so a whole new generation of people are economically now marginalized even though they did all the right things well, even even the people who even the people who never got a predatory mortgage, who paid their mortgage They're on time every single day, if they lived in a segregated neighborhood where a lot of people, other people got segregated, got predatory loans, their home value dropped through the floor. And when their home value dropped through the floor, their ability to fund that small business, fund that education, mm-hmm. even bar, get a line of equity uh, to go re- redo the house, keep it up. Or so get it's retrained. Stay, get retrained. Okay. I mean, all of that really, 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 it really is a devastating impact. And like you said, 
uh, you know, this has a disproportionate impact on black and women. And when we realize that a lot of the evidence that we've been seeing suggests that these communities were actually targeted. So no people doubt. who had all the credentials to have a, a, a regular loan mm -hmm. were actually targeted for these subprime loans. They, they were steered away from prime loans. That's right. Most of these mortgages that went bad were refis. Mm -hmm. So I got a, a friend, I love her so much. Her name is uh, Sharon Glover, and she doesn't mind me mentioning her name. Uh, African-American woman, uh, you know, at one time in her life, she was a nun. And uh, at older age, she ended up refining her house to, uh, her husband died, mm -hmm. uh, and ended up refining the, the note, and um, and and then got, got behind. It was a predatory loan. It, it didn't get her anything. She literally did not benefit from this loan at all. And, uh, you know, we fought, fought, fought and tried to help her keep that house. And uh, and these are, there are too many stories like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's think about what the reaction to this has been. Um, instead of a conversation that focuses on the fact that uh, particular communities were targeted unfairly, the conversation mm -hmm. instead was irresponsible um, you know, people who got into homes over their heads without the recognition that many of these people were in their own homes. Were in their own right? homes. Right? They were refinancing situations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And they were and they were falsehoods, they were misstated incomes, they were they were they were crimes committed against communities and and you know, and and, and again, you know, I was in Congress at the time. You know, we were told that if we didn't vote for the bailout, which was gonna be used for the government to purchase purchase the mortgages mm -hmm. to help homeowners. Once they got their money, they did cash infusion to the bank, which didn't really help the homeowners. And, you know, a lot of people were lied. Congress was lied to. The banks got over. A lot of them gave each other bonuses afterwards. Trickle it down was, economics. It was one of the Does worst. Yeah. Well, you know, the truth is, you know, you're right. I mean, it really, it really was one of the most shameful moments in American history. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. uh, and again, the, the negative effects are still playing out. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the thing. So we're talking about you know African-American women historically excluded from protections like NLRB. Currently, if they work for a, a, a small employer or like a, like a household that mm -hmm. they work for, mm -hmm. you know, they're excluded from Family Medical Leave Act and there's all these- And anti-discrimination provisions. And anti-discrimination provi mm -hmm. provisions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in, in these, we know these sort of like this, uh, this toxic brew of difficult uh, circumstances. And so into this set of circumstances, you know, you have women who are- trying to make it, trying to hang on, and then you get the person who is sworn to protect and serve them, you know, um, really. Abusing them. Abusing them. Mm -hmm. uh, you played a very important role uh, in uh, getting justice for Daniel Holtzclaw, who mm -hmm. was a rapist. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, he didn't just rape anyone and everyone, did he? Mm -mm. No. I mean, and, and this once again is an example of um, the intersectional vulnerability of particular mm -hmm. women. So Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, a police officer in Oklahoma City, um, uh, had a, a, a strategy um, of identifying black women running their plates mm -hmm. to see if they had any kind of uh, criminal justice involvement because he suspected, correctly so, um, that any woman who had had some kind of background would know that 
the likelihood that she was going to be believed was virtually non-existent or that if they had any outstanding issues that that this encounter with this police officer would make life wor worse for him mm -hmm. so one after another after another he would target these women he would pull them aside he would force them into sexual acts and then he would send them home mm -hmm. um, it was only when he pulled over a 57 year old grandmother um, and forced her to perform a sexual act on him she then reported it, and then it turned out um, that all these other stops that had mysteriously turned up on, you know, his computer without any arrest were women who were also subject to this. Now, um, this is a case of sexual abuse, and it's a case of police abuse. Mm -hmm. You won't hear people talking about this kind of abuse in the typical sort of um, advocacy around violence against women because people don't think about the kind of women who su are subjected to violence by police. Mm -hmm. These are poor women. These are black women. These are women with system involvement. Sometimes these are women who are chemically dependent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're women who actually work the streets. They are society's throwaway women. And because they're in that vulnerable position, it's clear that people in authority can actually take advantage of them without really having to worry you know, that there's a high risk that they're going to be caught. These women also are, are not talked about in the uh, movement against police um, abuse because right. people don't think about police abuse actually being something that happens to women. It's well, still let, thought let, about Let's as be honest. We, we, think, we think of like Eric Garner. Yes. We think of Michael Brown. That's right. Uh, some cop shooting some black kid, uh, unarmed black kid, or choking him out, or something like that. Yeah. But the Sandra Bland case really kind of blew every. I mean, it kind well, of shocked the conscience a little bit, but clearly not enough yeah. because you ticked off maybe I don't know thirteen, fourteen well, well, victims. So maybe. so so let let me do it for for your listeners just to really drive the point home. So you mentioned Eric Garner. Um, uh, what I do sometimes is ask everybody to put their hand up and when they hear a name of someone they don't know to put it down. So I start with Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, uh, Michael Brown, um, Freddie Gray. And for the most part, people keep their hands up. Then mm -hmm. I start with the women, Michelle Cusseau, mm -hmm. Tanisha Anderson, mm -hmm. Ara Russer, Maya Hall, Megan Hockaday. Um, by the time I get to Megan, there's usually, your, your hand was still up, but uh, when we did it at the Progressive Caucus, I think maybe there were two hands up in a room of at least a couple hundred people, mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm. um, what I tell people is all the names of the women are women who were killed within a week to two weeks of the names of the men who were killed, right. but we don't know their names. So if we don't know their names, how can we possibly create interventions that attend to the circumstances that led them to lose their lives to police violence. Mm. If you don't have a sense of the problem, if you can't see the problem, you can't really begin to solve the problem. So that's why we, we developed Say Her Name, to say, you need to know the names of the women in order to say them, which means you might have to dig a little bit beyond what the media will pick up, beyond the, the pictures on the posters or, or what's on the, the front of a magazine. There are women in all of these communities who are also being killed and girls. And if we're gonna have an effective movement uh, against police uh, brutality, it has to include women and girls. That's hashtag say her name, everybody. Uh, and you should check it out. You know, one last topic I think that I'd like to ask you about, if, and, and, then, and then I'd like to ask you, okay, so what, what are we gonna do? Mm -hmm. 
But when we talk about the economic challenge to African-Americans of mass incarceration, mm -hmm. there's a lot of challenges. Uh, we know that about, I think about 90% of the prisoners are men, about 10% are women. Mm -hmm. Of course, African-American women are increasingly finding themselves incarcerated in the criminal justice system as well. Mm -hmm. But we often find, you know, we know that, you know, when people go to prison and they get out, you know, their ability to vote, their ability to work, their ability to do a lot of things is curtailed. But the people who are not in prison with their loved one, a lot of times th those people are women. Um, what's their reality? What is their economic hit in terms of the phone, in terms of the commissary, in terms of the kids, in terms of all that kind of stuff? Well, let's take it uh, across the board. So first of all, let's just think about um, the role of mass incarceration on uh, black women's um, uh, economic well-being. Most of the time when someone is incarcerated, a family member has had to pay um, some money uh, either around bail or around getting a, a, an attorney um, or um, for transfers. There's a whole um, uh, industry that's built around mass incarceration that's basically uh, there to suck money out of communities of color. Uh, the Ferguson report talked about this, right? The, the, the use of the criminal process to basically pull money out and of the fine, communities. The fine the system. Fines. Um, and, and many of, many of the, the, the folks most impacted by this um, are, are, are breadwinners. They're women. They're, they're folks who are in the communities who are available for this particular, um, you know, kind of, uh, 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 abuse. Can I say this? In the yeah. 16 years that I was a criminal defense lawyer, mm -hmm. and I sat in many a jail cell with, with mostly guys, but some women too, uh, when we went to court, the person who was in the courtroom was the mom, the wife, the girlfriend. girlfriend. Um, the person putting money on the books, mom, wife, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. The person paying me when I, had, you know, when I didn't have public defense cases mm -hmm. and they were privately retained, mm -hmm. mom, wife, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just... You know, and, and I remember going to see my client on the days when they had visitation, and these lines would be hanging all the way out the Hennepin County Government Center. And who's in line? Yeah. Mom, wife, girlfriend, right. with baby on the hip. That's right. And it's just, you just get the impression that there's this massive impact that we just really never and, even and, deal with. And, and women are getting it both ways. So they're getting it, as you point out, because they have to expend resources. Um, to to support um, the men in their lives and to visit the men in their lives to call the men in their lives expensive you know, proposition when, when we talk about you know how much it costs just to stay in touch it is it, it's just obscene how much money um, is being made off of uh, of the desire of loved ones to to stay connected and, and can I say this uh, professor mm -hmm. and you know so you can listen to an edition of of we the podcast. Uh, episode 11 on prison phone rates, where a fairly heroic black woman named Mignon Clyburn fought valiantly to cap phone rates. Of course, the big companies are suing, and so we'll see what happens. But yeah. please, sorry to interrupt so, you. Well, well, but that's exactly you know the the kind of realities that lead women to to challenge these conditions. So you know they're they're, they're losing out that way, and then when they themselves are caught up in mass incarceration, yeah. and this is. Um, you know, the, the story that doesn't really get spoken about as much, the majority of, of women who are incarcerated um, have particular histories uh, of abuse and other forms of marginality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and then those women who are incarcerated because of a drug offense, 
um, face collateral consequences after they uh, get out. Can't get so a Pell Grant. They can't get a grant, so they can't really um, advance uh, their their educational profile. They can't get licenses in many of the professions. Like to do that, hair someplace. To do hair or to be a home health care worker mm -hmm. um, or a daycare worker. These are the, the jobs that are generally sure. available for these women, and they can't get access. Now, mind you, um, if you kill somebody... Um, or 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 embezzle their the, the 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 futures of a million people. Once you get out, you can go right back to doing exactly what you were doing before. But these women, many of whom are being incarcerated, not because they were major drug pens, uh, but because they were the sisters, the wives, the mothers um, of somebody else who was being caught up, um, and they weren't able to negotiate a downward departure. Yeah, they sure. weren't willing to turn over some. Information. They were afraid to do so. Any number of reasons. I represented this 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 woman, African American woman, who was of German ancestry. Her mother, she was, she came from the United States with her mother at a young age. She was black and German. Mm -hmm. The police say we found dope in your house. We're going to charge you with it. You tell on your boyfriend, and we will deal with it in state court. You don't, and not only are we going to throw you in federal prison, we're going to deport you. Mm. I mean, you know, there's a, that, you know, heavy. it's heavy, man. It's, heavy. it's, it's beyond description. And a lot of these women are not, these are most, most, meaning 50% or more mm -hmm. women and girls in prison are for nonviolent offenses. Yes. yes. Economic offenses, offenses having to do uh, with drugs, vast majority of them, yet they're doing sentences. Remember Kimba Smith. Kimba Smith was oh, yeah. given more than a 20-year sentence, never sold drugs, never handled drugs, because she was accused for conspiracy, conspiracy. on right on, on the full value of what her boy her boyfriend did. So you know, mass incarceration is very much um, you and, know and a can factor. We, and can we mention this? Mm -hmm. uh, women in who go to prison. Often, uh, there are child are, are the uh, child sole. Provi sole providers for their children, and so they also get a child protection case. And and many end up losing their children. Yeah. So uh, Congress passed an act um, that allowed for uh, their parental rights. Uh, to be extinguished if they spent uh, something like 22, 23 consecutive months apart from their children. Well, if you are incarcerated, you don't have control over yeah. your access to your children. Uh, often the state has control or other relatives do. Um, and there are no requirements that uh, prison officials actually make uh, children accessible to those who are incarcerated. So you get two sentences. You get the sentence for the thing that supposedly, you know, you did, and you also lose your children. And this is something disproportionately that happens to women. And if you're a woman going to federal prison, uh -huh. there's fewer federal facilities. Therefore, the chance that you are very far away from home is significantly States greater. away. So, you yeah. know, the, the, the closing of Danbury, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, the federal facility where many women in, in the Northeast went. And, you know, the, the idea was we're going to open a prison like in Mississippi or somewhere um, that, you know, will, will house house these women. So, you know, they're, they're further away because there are fewer prisons. Yeah. And there's a greater consequence when they are the sole caretakers for their children. And if I may say so, we a few years ago, we started getting into... 
this issue of reentry, which mm-hmm. is very good. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will say reentry services for women are dramatically behind even what's there for men and the men's reentry isn't that good. Yeah. Well, and this again is a, is a product of a couple of things when there are fewer of you. So as you pointed out, um, women make up 10%, you know, of the prison population. So that means that there are fewer prisons. It means they're further away. And that means that there are fewer programs and services, yeah. and services for them. So, so that's, you know, problem, you know, number one, but the other problem, um, is that because there are fewer women, there's the assumption that this isn't quite the burden on women of color that it's that more, it is. It's greater and than in on fact, the... you know, the disparities mm-hmm. between women of color and white women in, in, in incarceration, yeah. uh, in police misconduct, even in school pushout, those disparities in, in some measures are even greater than the disparities between men. Yeah. But we don't have the ability to think about that. We don't think about race and economic marginality as something that happens between women. And until we have that, there's not going to be a lot of pressure for more inclusive programs in reentry and, and, and in other arenas as well. Well, well let me just say, not if, it, not if you have anything to do with it. <laughs> there's a lot of people who care. They, they don't, there's a lot of people of all descriptions who, who hate the racism, who hate the sexism, and who want to address the intersectionality. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that people can do to be constructive and helpful? Well, you know, I think one of the most important things is uh, cr- contributing to making these issues more visible. Yeah. You, you can't uh, fight something that you cannot see. Yeah. Uh, and we um, have, have come out of a period of time in which if the conversation is about race, um, we don't see women and girls. Right. And when the conversation is about women, we don't tend to see women of color or girls of color. And these are deep grooves. These are these are, you know, um, uh, etched in our awareness about how, how we identify a race problem or how mm. we identify, you know, a gender problem. So some part of what we have to do is 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 force ourselves to think outside the box yeah. um, with our Say Her Name campaign. One of our um, uh, T-shirts. Um, is basically a word puzzle. It has the names of 25 women who've been killed by the police. But you have to actually work to see it. You have to look and and find the names. We want to use that as a metaphor for what needs to happen in order to be an ally in intersectional justice. You have to do the work to identify the issues, to see the people, um, to lift up these particular ways of of experiencing uh, intersectional discrimination. And the last thing is, um, you know, we have to create more of a sense of symmetry in how we think about being allies, Mm -hmm. right? We have a real asymmetrical idea about what women should do for men versus what men should do for women. Right. Right. And that's in our community as well as in society, you know, as a whole. Um, that asymmetry has gotten us into a lot of trouble, you know, historically. And it's something that we're now at a point where we can and should correct with the uh, new caucus on black women and girls. Isn't that just exciting? Got started. That's really, really exciting. It's a first step. Um, but it's sending a signal um, that women and girls are not junior partners in the struggle for racial justice, just like women of color are not junior partners in the struggle for uh, gender justice. So, so these are exciting moments, and it really you know, turns on what we're able to make of them. Well, I want to just say that the uh, caucus on, on um, black women and girls uh, 
got started when you gave a tremendous talk at a at a progressive caucus event and one of our star you know leaders uh bonnie watson coleman said hey i'm gonna take some initiative here and also too i just think it's very important that to point out and i and maybe you could expound on this that it one of the things about the time we're living in now is you see some really awesome black women leaders stepping up, doing some really critical things, like the whole BLM movement seems to be led by by black women. The work that you're doing is so awesome. Uh, a lot of the fight for fifteen folks are are, are, are black women, and and you know, and and uh, what 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 does that mean? What what, what does that sort of show us? <laughs> well, you know, um, it it actually is the case that you know historically and now black women have long been the leaders. Uh, in many of our communities, I mean, you think about Joanne Robinson, who oh, made yeah. the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, possible. Um, we could go back and name so. Now, many just women. to say, this is the lady who uh, ran off. All the flyers, flyers with one of them old fashioned. Oh, there, there, there was no tweeting. <laughs> None of that hey, y'all, let's show up. Blah blah. That was old school, you know. And 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 that kind of uh, leadership has, has always been there. The the challenges in um, remembering it, yeah, uh, and ensuring that the issues that impact those women are also in the agenda. So you can lead an agenda that doesn't necessarily have your issue in the middle of it. Well, I mean, you, you know, so like Rosa Parks, yes. who was a, a, a rebellious, trained, committed, dedicated fighter wasn't for, just for justice. just down because her feet were tired. There wasn't no thing about feet and tired. This woman had that. been at the uh, at the, the Freedom School, had been the secretary in the NAACP, but Interestingly, she didn't really get to speak that much, although she was eloquent. Yeah. She wasn't a table pounder, but she was very and, eloquent. And the, the other thing that's often not known about Rosa Parks is that she was a rape crisis advocate. Mm. So her, her, her initial activism mm. actually came from defending a black woman named Reese Taylor and, and other black women who uh, had been raped. Um, and the rapes had been uh, covered up, raped by you know white folks. One uh, who was the son of a of a, a police official. Mm. Uh, so she cut her teeth on uh, challenging the ways that black women experience racism. That all kind of gets erased when she yeah. just gets lifted up, you know, as the the patron this saint, icon, yeah. the icon. But but not an activist in her in her own right, which she certainly was. Yeah, this has been. You know, this has been part of our history. I, you know, some people ask me sometimes, you know, how did you get started? And, and I, I tell them that um, I, it comes from a mistake that I made a long time ago. Uh-oh. I, uh, I was one of three people who, it, this was in, in law school, um, and after the end of the, uh, the first exams, um, our, our, my two other study mates um, uh, and, and I decided to get together and to go to this place called the Fly Club. It was a, a famous Harvard uh, club, and he was the first black member of the club. Mm. So he invited us, and, and, and me and the other uh, friend you know, were saying, well, should we really go to this place? And, mm -hmm. and we said, okay, well, we're going to have each other's back. If anything goes wrong, we're not going to take any stuff. <laughs> we actually used another word, but I'm going to say right yeah, now, yeah, we're yeah. not going to take any, any stuff. stuff. So we get to the front door, when we knock on the door, our friend quickly opens the door and steps outside and shuts it behind him. Mm -hmm. My other friend and I say, okay, this is the kind of stuff that we said we weren't going to take. So we, you know, we like, what's going on? And we just <laughs> right, decided right, that right. there's a rule that there can only be one black person in here. I mean, we're just not going to be down for it. 
And he said, well, no, 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 that, that's not it. That's not it. The problem is I forgot to tell you that Kim can't come in the front door. We have a rule that women have to go around to the back door. So from my vantage point, this was stuff that we said we were not going to take, right? It didn't make any difference to me whether I couldn't come in because I was black or I was a woman. The thing was, I couldn't come in. The front and door. I thought, yeah. you know, that the collaboration, the commitment was shared. My friend said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So much and for I, solidarity. So much for solidarity. So much for solidarity. <laughs> and then I got that, you know, that look, that pleading look like, Please don't embarrass us. Please don't do your black woman thing and act out here. We're about to go into the fly club. And 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 I, I owned that. You know, I had that moment of, okay, I don't want to make it bad, you know, for them. Took so one for the team. Around the back door I went and I swore that I was never gonna do it again. So well, I really well, think I wanna thank you for telling that story because maybe somebody listening will remember a time when they were confronted with a similar situation. Mm -hmm. And the best thing to do about it is to do what Kimberly Crenshaw did, <laughs> dedicate yourself to justice forevermore after that, right? <laughs> so I just want you to know that um, we really appreciate everything that you do. Say her name, everyone. Uh, you can. Uh, well, why don't you give us some of your uh, some of your contact <laughs> stuff? I mean, I know that you yeah. you guys got a great website. Yeah. So our website is www.aapf for the African American Policy Forum .org. Uh, On our website, you can find the Say Her Name report, which discusses uh, Black women and girls who've been killed or abused by the police. Uh, you can also find our um, Black Girls Matter report that mm. talks about the consequences of pushing Black women and girls um, out of education. And, and most importantly, um, we have a town hall series. We've been to 10 uh, cities across the country in the last two, uh, two years talking to women and girls of color, trying to create the public will. The public needs to know in order to be held accountable. And this is designed to provide an opportunity for women and girls to come and talk about, you know, having to take the early bus or the consequence of having been forced out of school, you know, in, in order to do work fair. We hear about all of these issues so that we can actually be better allies. And hopefully we'll be able to do one. In Minneapolis. Minneapolis. We got we to do it. We got to do it soon. <laughs> so thank you for, for taking a moment with thank us, you. Professor. I really great. And, and I want everybody to uh, check out to your website, which is www.aapf.org, African American Policy Forum. And check out the hashtag. Say her name. All right. Hey, this has been another edition of We the Podcast. Tune in next week. Do me a favor, head on over to the We The Podcast page on iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe today. We need your support. This episode of We The Podcast was produced by Abby Shanfield, Brett Morrow, and edited by Zach Free.